0: You can broadly categorize aviation's uh, climate impact into CO2 and non-CO2. So CO2, we know, is right driven by uh, by fuel burn. And the primary non-CO2 effect is this type of uh, artificial cirrus cloud warming. And that's, I think, not really, uh, you know, in the public awareness.
1: Welcome to Growing Impact a podcast by the Institute of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. Each month, Growing Impact explores the projects of Penn State researchers who are solving some of the world's most challenging energy and environmental issues. Each project has been funded through a seed grant program that's facilitated through IEE. I'm your host, Kevin Sliman. Contrails, the cloud-like streaks left in the sky by jets, are the effect of water vapor condensing around soot and dust in the atmosphere. These artificial clouds from the aviation industry contribute to climate change, and that impact is likely to grow as the number of air travelers is anticipated to grow significantly in the coming decades. Additionally, the airline industry's efforts to address climate change may not be adequate to properly keep pace with the need. On this episode of Growing Impact, A team of researchers discusses the climate challenges associated with aviation and the team's efforts to mitigate the climate impacts of contrails. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being on Growing Impact today. Could we go around and have everyone introduce themselves? Tell us your name and a bit about your research
0: uh sure good morning thanks for having us here and uh, my name is Sven schmitz i'm the boeing valuable professor of aerospace uh, engineering uh, teaching at the undergraduate and graduate level here in uh, fundamental and applied uh, aerodynamics uh, my group also conducts uh, research uh, in the aerodynamics of current and future aircraft um, propulsion systems uh, wind turbines and uh, helicopters
2: my name is andrew carlton i'm a uh professor emeritus of geography. Uh, My specialty is um, uh, physical geography and climatology in particular. I'm also a uh, Penn State Academy uh, professor and um, most of my research over the many years I've been doing it has been focused on regional and larger scale uh, climate processes and uh, I've actually been Looking at contrails, studying them in some form or another for about the past uh, 40 years, almost
1: 40 years. And Borji, could I pass it to you for your introduction, please?
3: Yes, uh, I am a for- assistant professor at. Uh, Penn State Abington, near the Philadelphia region. I am teaching engineering and physics classes here. And my research in generally in around the material science, um, defect properties of the materials and the radiation of the material properties. And um, I also recently interested in sustainability in education. And that's I think where I come from uh, in this project.
4: My name is Guido Cherbone. I'm a professor in uh, geography, meteorology, and atmospheric science here at Penn State. I uh, joined Penn State in 2014, so I'm close to my 10 years anniversary in just a few more months. Uh, I'm, my expertise is in geoinformatics and remote sensing. Um, I'm a computer scientist by training, and uh, I. I have a very strong appetite for large data and analyzing those large data uh, primarily to detect anomalies or to uh, make predictions. And I privilege uh, problems that are either extreme or rare. And uh, I built my career on um, analyzing uh, data relative to natural hazards or renewable energy.
1: Your project is investigating contrails and their impact on climate. And for those who may not know, contrails are those cloud-like streaks that are created by jets in the sky. And before we get too far into contrails, can we discuss aviation's overall impact on climate?
0: Well, yeah, first off, to start with a number, I think currently aviation's impact on climate change is estimated at about 4%. So you may get the reaction, hey, that's not all that much. So now comes the big but here, right? And the big but is that uh, um, uh, the passengers are supposed to increase fourfold in the next uh, in the next thirty years. So we're getting a four times increase here. And then uh, climate impact of aviation has been a little bit dormant compared to um, other um, right uh, climate impactors. And uh, while those are already working on it in reducing their climbing impact, aviation has been growing exponentially, and that topic has been somewhat a little bit neglected. um, Also to the absence of of really right scientific insight into the processes of how aviation uh, impacts climate.
2: Yes, and I think in terms of uh, the impacts on the environment, I think these can probably be um, grouped into two two main areas. One is the, uh, of course, the emissions of the the various uh, gases, uh, such as carbon dioxide and water vapor. Um, Also the the soot particles, the particulates. Um, And then also into, on the other side, uh, is the generation of um, these high altitude uh, clouds, these trails um, that we call Contrails. And so between those two uh, aspects um, is, is really where you have the, uh, the major impacts on the atmospheric environment, uh, at least. And uh, I guess, as we'll talk about, the, uh, there's also from that impacts on the surface uh, environment in terms of uh, temperature, for example.
3: People in the industry of aviation, they are aware of this situation that they it's affecting the environment, it's affecting sustainability, and they are producing uh, solutions, new solutions. Um, this might be a new fuel and uh, fuels or new engines that might reduce these contrails, but. Um, There has not been a study or investigation on are these solutions really sustainable Uh, from the life that it has been beginning to the end uh, of these uh, production of new materials or new engines or new fuels? Are they really sustainable? That's another question. Can you
1: discuss the challenges that the airline industry and airlines themselves face um, in bringing on new and more efficient jets and maybe the compor and or the components within those jets
0: uh it takes it takes decades to develop a new aircraft and to certify it right so, so keep in mind you're, you're moving you know hundreds of people in one aircraft uh, uh, across the ocean so the certification uh, uh, process of that is is uh is is very is very intense and and the cost is immense now there is no right revolution inside, but it, it has been a constant evolution. Uh, engines have been improving, right? They're now twice as efficient, meaning they, they burn uh, half the, the fuel compared to 25 or 30 years ago. Um, you see things like winglets. These are the edges at, at the tip of the wings mm-hmm. and they have various shapes. So there is uh, active research that has been going on to upgrade right, existing existing aircraft. So again, so there has been an evolution, but uh, um, um, these improvements, they have not been able to keep up with the general growth of, uh, of passenger miles in, uh, in aviation. An interesting number to note is that 50% of all flights are done by 1% of the people on Earth. Eighty percent of the flights are done by two percent of the people, so so we have, uh, we have a world um, where also and you mentioned it before, more and more populations uh, want to travel, mm-hmm. and uh, they are all good sides uh, with traveling and uh, and meeting and uh, inner connectivity of all sorts, but it's a challenging topic. Can you define what a contrail
1: is?
2: Yes, a a contrail really is an artificial cloud, it stands for, a contrail stands for condensation trail, implying that um, this cloud that forms uh, behind the jet engines of of aircraft um, is the result of condensation of water vapour around um, soot and uh, dust particles in the atmosphere. And in uh, although we we've called them contrails for a, a very long time, it's probably more accurate to refer to them as as ice trails or sublimation trails because um, they are composed of ice. They because they form in the upper levels of the of the atmosphere or what we call the the troposphere, um, where it's very very cold. Um, the uh, the water vapor. uh, Tends to sublimate into ice rather than into uh, into water vapor. Though you can get them at lower altitudes uh, from planes in lower altitudes where there will be water, uh, liquid water as well as as well as ice. But anyway, these these long trails um, will form um, not behind every plane because sometimes the uh, the atmosphere is too dry. It can be cold. Uh, but it may not be cold enough uh, and it may be too dry and if you do not have enough moisture in the uh, in the upper troposphere uh, you may get a contrail that lasts fairly briefly it'll be a short trail and, if, and as you watch it from the ground you can see the trail um, just following the plane but disappearing uh, shortly after that. Uh, and um, but when you have enough water vapor in the uh, upper troposphere, and when it's cold enough, um, then you can get these what we call persisting uh, uh, contrails. So the the um, uh, these are the contrails that will spread across, or at least the the linear clouds will spread across the sky or reach across the sky. Um, and because they require certain humidity and temperature uh, conditions. If you're in an area where there's a lot of um, uh, aircraft flight, jet engine flights, um, then uh, you can sometimes see these multiple trails. Uh, across the sky. And over time, and by that we mean probably beyond about 40 to 60 minutes, if the conditions are still suitable, these uh, trails can spread um, and become thinner in the vertical sense. They can become thinner, they can spread laterally across the sky, they can merge with other contrails, and then we call them contrail cirrus. And it's contrail cirrus that is really um that really uh has the potential to have the biggest climate impact because they tend to act more like um a bit more like regular cirrus clouds natural cirrus clouds um than artificial clouds and again the coverage that they get across the sky uh has the potential to increase their um uh, their impacts
1: to confirm you're saying naturally occurring clouds affect climate, correct?
2: Yes, they do. And um, yes, and again, it depends on the kinds of clouds um, that you have. Probably most climate scientists would agree that um, lower level clouds or thick clouds in the lower levels of the atmosphere that are comprised more of water... Uh, liquid water, and maybe with some mix of ice, um, tend to have a bit of a cooling effect on the Earth's surface because they tend to be more reflective of the incoming solar energy than they are to trap the heat that the Earth gives off, the infrared or long wave radiation um but uh, as model studies have suggested and even observational studies if climate change involves increases in upper clouds cirrus level clouds more that has the potential to uh make greenhouse gas warming uh or amplify it make it worse um by letting solar radiation still pass through during the daytime but also having the heat trapping Effect. So, um, so yes. To, to to answer your question, cloud, different kinds of clouds, natural clouds, do have an impact on climate, and they have the potential uh, impact on uh, climate change, depending on whether the increases are at lower levels, to middle levels, versus um, upper levels. Contrails do differ from natural clouds, even though they're both upper-level, upper-level cirrus-type cl- uh, clouds, uh, and this affects their impacts on on the climate a bit, the surface temperature. Um, the, the the contrail clouds tend to have uh, Uh, smaller ice particles in them than natural cirrus clouds do and also they tend to have more of these ice uh, ice particles in a smaller volume and so those two things together tend to make contrails at least when they initially form behind uh, a jet aircraft it tends to make them a bit more reflective of solar radiation than natural cirrus clouds do natural cirrus clouds tend to have um, somewhat bigger ice particles, and there's not so many per unit uh, volume. But, but again, as contrails spread over time, they tend to resemble natural cirrus clouds more, and tend to have similar kinds of impacts.
1: I think a lot of folks are familiar with CO two or carbon dioxide being a contributor to climate change from burning fossil fuels. However, there's non CO two warming. Can we discuss what non-CO two warming is?
0: So I think uh, you can you can broadly categorize aviation's uh, climate impact into CO two and non-CO two. So CO two we know is right driven by uh, by fuel burn, and the primary non-CO two effect is this type of. Uh, Artificial cirrus cloud warming that uh, that Andrew that Andrew just explained, and that's I think not really um, uh, you know in the public awareness that that half of aviation's climate impact is really caused by these non non CO two and that also includes right uh, uh, nitrate oxides and water itself which is a greenhouse gas um, uh, into the upper atmosphere. So it's this this balance of non-CO2, where there's also a large uncertainty bar in the climate models um, of of what the particular effect is. I don't know, Andrew. You probably know more. As as I understand that, I mean that's that effect is as old as the earth.
2: Right. Yes, and it's it's uh, it's it's again re- related to. Um, as the temperature increases, you tend to get more uh, evaporation, and when you get more evaporation, you put more water vapor into the atmosphere, and uh, and then you you tend to increase the temperature, and it can be something of a of a positive uh, feedback. and And we see we see that in our in our own lives. I think when we, um, if if you have a a humid uh, night, a, a night in which there's a lot of water vapor around, it feels humid. Uh, the temperatures tend not to drop as much uh, as if you have a night, let's say, at the same time of the year, but where uh, it's very dry, the atmosphere is very dry, there's very little water vapor, you tend to have um, the overnight temperatures tend to drop um, lower. So it, it, that's a way in, in our everyday lives that we can see that impact of, of, uh, of water vapor on uh, sustaining uh, temperature and maybe even amplifying it.
4: I just wanted to contribute to the discussion by looking at it, maybe not from a different angle. So think about the Earth as a system that must balance its energy. So, you know, we get, and the energy comes primarily from the sun. There is, you know, I mean, a little bit of energy self-created, you know, like internal tectonics and magma and so on. And then there is infinitesimally small comes from the moon and from, you know, uh, the stars. So most of the energy you know, comes from the sun. And all those different. Unfortunately, uh, we have an atmosphere because if we didn't have an atmosphere, the equator would be a lot warmer than it is, and the poles would be a lot cooler. So, in effect, you know, the atmosphere is one way to redistribute this energy from this excess of energy at the, the equator to uh, towards the pole, and it does that at different timescales. You know, we have ocean currents to redistribute energy in you know, like fifty to hundred years. And then you know we have regular atmospheric circulations that do that, you know, I mean, you know, time scales of days to months. And then you know we have extreme events, you know, things like hurricanes that they can they're very efficient way to redistribute energy in, you know, a few days. and if you think all those hurricanes, you know, they form over, you know, almost equatorial areas and then you know they dissipate, you know, at higher latitudes, So they just redistribute energy. Now, all those gases in the atmosphere, things, you know, like, I mean, let's say just water vapor and clouds in general, they are part of this balancing mechanism because, in a sense, you know, they change the albedo of our planet. So with albedo, we basically, you can think of it as the color of our planet. Um, of course, it would be integrated over the all uh, electromagnetic spectrum, not just the visible. But basically, the clouds they are helping to either reflect some of the radiation uh, that, from the sun that you'd actually reach the surface, you know, from preventing from doing so. But then it will also uh, help, you know, the long-wave radiation, that the, so basically the heat that, you know, the Earth is generating, you know, just reflecting it back. And, you know, clouds are a very important way for the, the help, in the, sorry, that the Earth has to balance this energy. You can imagine it, you know, if we start like increasing, you know, artificially, you know, those clouds, we're basically tempering with the Hertz natural way to balance its
1: energy. When it comes to contrails, what are you exploring? And can you tell us about the goals of the project?
0: Project is titled a multidisciplinary approach to mitigating climate impacts of aviation contrails. So that's really, that's really what we're after. So one challenge has been, how do you cover in predictions, in models that disparate range of of timescales. And so here, right in my area, I think that that gets approached by, by doing high fidelity simulations of, of complete aircraft with engines and work on the control formation. And then I thought, I need to work with somebody who has kind of a earth system point of view, which is a geographer. And so I, I first, you know, met uh, met Andrew and uh, convinced him he was just retired to meet for coffee with me. And he was, uh, uh, you know, surprisingly interested in sharing, right, his career insights in, into Contrail. And then we also involved uh, uh, Guido and uh, Bourjou and then Massa from the Abington campus on the sustainability aspect. Yeah, so what, what's, what we are really aiming is bridging the gap. Bridging the gap between a short-term uh, simulation and then sort of verifying and validating that, which with its longer-term impact through satellite imaging. So I'm working, I'm an aerodynamicist on this side, and I pass it on to Andrew and Guido now for the geography side, and we circle into into Bourgeois for the sustainability side.
2: Yes, so um my work uh, on the project relates more to the um, the detection of the contrails and uh, using the satellite data, and uh, so identifying them, determining their characteristics, and um, relating those to the uh, atmospheric environments in in which they uh, in which they occur. And at least that's sort of the bigger picture. And then from that, can we extrapolate? um forward how is climate change for example going to change those upper atmosphere environments will that increase potentially increase or decrease contrail incidents incident and obviously that's separate from the uh uh from the role that um changes in jet engines changes in in aircraft may may uh, may do um and um so there is a predictive aspect there um and a link in uh, to the model uh, verification. Um, so we do need the observational uh, analyses to, um, in their own right, but also to link in with with model verification. And I think Guido can probably speak more specifically to uh, to those kinds of things.
4: As Andrew um, just said, I mean, I'm also interested in uh, uh, the user remote sensing to detect the clouds. Uh, primarily, you know, from a computational point of view. So, you know, now that we know how we can detect the clouds, how can we build a system that can does this at scale, basically over the entire planet every few minutes. And uh, so something that is efficient so that it won't take, you know, a few hours to detect, you know, the clouds on a few minutes basis. And then um, another aspect that I'm, quite interested is, can we assimilate data from the airplanes, data that Andrew um, pointed to us that are available? How can we uh, try to link the environmental data that are detected from the airplanes with the formation or not of contrails that we detect from the satellites? And then finally, the last aspect that I find extremely interesting is how do we link these to models, both the atmospheric models? In other words, can we uh, are the atmospheric models doing? Um, I mean, so the atmospheric models they generally do not simulate clouds, but can we actually use the output of the atmospheric models in order to? estimate when cloud, when cloud control clouds are most likely to form or not so even though the models do not output control clouds well you know can we actually do that and the second is well you know how do we get all this knowledge that now we have gathered into the engineering model where we actually have this the formation of a control or not
3: From my perspective, me and my student, my undergraduates, our undergraduate students, uh, we are conducting life cycle assessments uh, for future um, aviation technologies that we have. Basically, um, let me first tell you what is a life cycle assessment? It's a systematic analysis of an environmental impact Uh, on on a product um, during its life cycle. Uh, This starts from manufacturing to end of the life. Uh, Earlier you had a question, is recycling of um, jets or jet engines, um, is it really worthwhile? That's something actually we can simulate and we can see the cost efficiency. Uh, We are using um, CAD programs, computer aid drawing programs. Um, Either our students are drawing they're simulating the jet engines or they already get the jet engines, we have some parameters that they can play with it. Uh, For example, materials, they can try different materials. If we use a different material than they they are currently using, uh, can we reduce the impact on the environment, a negative impact on the environment, or can we reduce the cost? Uh, Does it really worthwhile to recycle the material or can we change the manufacturing methods? Does the transportation Matters uh, in the environmental impact, considering where it's manufactured and where it's shipped to be used. Uh, we are investigating all these effects and trying to find out um, this new technology's effect on the environment.
0: Yeah, and and our ultimate goal is really to take here the next step and and look at both right anticipated improvements in in engines and new aircraft configurations, right? Aircraft that are more of a blended wing body and uh, um, use other engine technologies and addition, hybrid electric propulsion, boundary layer ingestion, and, and this type of stuff, and um, see how those affect deformation and uh, the evolution of the contrail into a contrail series and its ultimate optical depth and um, net uh, uh, radiative forcing. So we are getting the data and the models together, and we are, we are ready for the next step. And, and as you mentioned, yes, it's a big challenge, but, but this team here with its background plays, everybody here can play um, with their own strength mm-hmm. but, uh, um, yeah, to work on this. It's, it's an exciting one, and it's something different. I'm not, I'm not aware of any group inside or outside Penn State with that unique mix of expertise to uh, tackle that problem.
1: Sven, just a moment ago, you talked about or you mentioned net radiative forcing. Could we talk a little bit about it and talk about how it's it's relation to uh, the work?
0: We have radiation coming to Earth, and we have radiation going away. So the main the main incident part is coming from the sun, and then uh, um, what uh, what irradiates from the Earth is is at different ranges of wavelengths, and uh, so clouds and greenhouse gases uh, play. Plain important um, um, factor here, uh, and uh, the net balance of everything going in and out is what what really defines uh, net radiative uh, forcing.
2: Different clouds, uh, different levels of clouds and thicknesses of clouds have different impacts on uh, on that. Uh, well, what we call the cloud radiative forcing. So lower and middle level clouds tend to be thicker. They tend to have more liquid water in them uh, and less ice. Um, and so they tend to be more reflective. They tend to reflect more of that solar radiation uh, than they trap um, the uh, the long wave uh, heat energy being given off by the Earth. So as a general statement, they tend to cool the Earth's surface. But uh, contrails and natural cirrus uh, tend to be different. They are. They tend to be thinner. They tend to be ice, as we've already talked about. Um, and so, they let. If 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 you think of it in terms, say, a layer of cirrus or a contrail layer, there are there are sort of holes, if you like, in between the ice crystals that let through more of that solar radiation than most other clouds would at lower levels, and that have more more water. So they still tend. And we see that on a, on a day in which there may be a lot of cirrus cloud around. It's still quite bright outside. It's a, there's a lot of solar radiation still coming through. There's not all that much being reflected away. Um, and at nighttime in particular, these, the presence of these cirrus clouds can also trap uh, some of that heat energy. So, so cirrus clouds and contrails are no different in this respect. Uh, tend to have a uh, a, po- a positive net radiative forcing. They tend to warm the Earth's surface, um, whereas um, natural clouds tend to have a negative net radiative forcing. So in terms of climate change, um, models tell us different things, but we don't really know. Are the high clouds going to be increasing in the future more than the low-level low and middle-level clouds, or will it be the opposite? Because that will determine, to an extent, the uh, the rate of increase of the uh, of the surface temperature, even separate from um, continued greenhouse gas
0: um, emissions.
1: If we implement solutions, can aviation be a sustainable form of travel?
0: I think the answer is well, uh, probably uh, not, never, right? And uh, we have to be realistic about that and and deal with that answer. Um, I just started reading this month's National Geographic and the editor-in-chief comments that, yes, travel has a complicated relationship with sustainability, even for the National Geographic that sends out ex- explorers. So to become uh, carbon neutral and sustainable is uh, is, is utopia. But, but I think uh, um, a realistic figure is to uh, consider something like a carbon neutral growth. That means we are projecting a four-fold uh, increase in uh, passengers in, in aviation, um, but we want to curb the additional carbon and non-CO2 effects to a level, say right before the pandemic in early 2020. So even though everything increases, we, we stay at a carbon neutral growth. And that's probably a realistic figure here. Um, half of that, will probably come from sustainable uh, aviation fuels of some sort. Uh, The other half, a mix of yet another aircraft technology uh, improvement and operational improvements. Now, the thing with contrails is, as a concluding remark, um, it affects all three of them. The aircraft technology in the engine, the operational improvements uh, around susceptible areas in, in some form, And then with sustainable aviation fuels that have different uh, components of of nitrate, oxides, and and soot.
3: I just want to maybe make a little bit optimistic comment on the sustainability part because, like, my other part of research on the material science part, and now seeing that there is this new materials produced and then, um, like, not just in the aviation, also in the spacecraft, That that's another thing that I'm working on. Like, can I have a material that can work good with the radiations and all these impacts with the space? And um, from my studies, I can say that it seems optimistic to me with these new materials. I guess it's just a matter of um, getting More funding towards this area, making this research a little bit faster, so that we can make these materials in the industrial sizes. I think that's the current the biggest challenge, and I can tell that uh, we have done uh, preliminary simulations with the existing uh, jet engines, and we have seen that mostly the materials and the manufacturings are has the most effect on the environment, most negative effect. So, like. So that brings the question that there there are two things that we need to change. One of them is the material. The other one is the manufacturing method. And um, as I mentioned, in terms of material, I'm very optimistic. And uh, in terms of manufacturing, also, we are seeing that um, even in these days, um, in the aviations, there are these 3D printed uh, parts of the plane that may not be applicable to the engine, but the other parts of the plane uh, that makes a little bit more sustainable.
2: Well, to the uh, to the question um, you posed about what the environmental impacts, if we do nothing, mm-hmm. um, then what we can expect really, of course, is to see more of the same. And what is that more of the same? Well, that is that in areas of, uh, high uh, density of air traffic, where there's a lot of uh, commercial aircraft uh, flights Um, We've seen over the last 50 or so, maybe 60 years or so, increases in regional cloud cover due to uh, contrails. We've seen um, decreases in what we call the diurnal temperature range, which is the difference between the daily high temperature and the overnight, typically overnight, minimum uh, air temperature. And... uh, those are consistent with the impacts of high-level clouds on the uh, the surface temperature, and so in places, in particularly in places like Western uh, Europe or Europe in general, actually, and the United States, uh, we've seen some of those biggest. Uh, decreases in the daily uh, temperature range, and increases in in the cloud amount, And um, in certain other areas, we believe that, um, or some studies have shown that there's a change in the local evaporation rates as well. If you have more high clouds, then you tend to have a little bit less evaporation from the surface, and if you have less evaporation from the surface, the surface that can change the um, uh the temperatures in the horizontal across spatial scales and maybe even change pressure surface pressure and even local winds so those those last things are, are not yet demonstrated uh, so much as argued on physical uh, principles, but again, if we do nothing, um, we're just going to be having more greenhouse gases emitted from jet engines, particularly in areas of high high density of air traffic, and more uh, contrail clouds and their impacts on the the climate near the Earth's surface where people live.
1: I really want to thank you. Thank you, Sven, Andrew, uh, yeah. Borju, and Guido. Thank you so much. I really
4: thank appreciate you. Absolutely changed
1: this has been Season 4, Episode 4 of Growing Impact. Thanks again to Sven Schmitz, Andrew Carlton, Borju Austin, and Guido Savone for speaking with me about their research. To read the transcript from this episode and to learn more about the research team, visit iee.psu.edu slash podcast. Once you're there, you'll find previous podcast episodes, related graphics, and so much more. Join me again next month as we continue our exploration of Penn State research and its growing impact. Thanks for listening.